One thing that's interesting when I reflect back, though, also I think the thing that I've really started to respect and appreciate so much is the consistency of dance in my life, because I do think it's the thing that has kept me alive. Because through all of that madness and the craziness, you won't believe the one thing I would never miss is my daily class. Welcome to I Am an Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, one of the approximately 9 million foreign-born people living here. I left Australia around 15 years ago to study in the UK. One thing led to another, and I stayed. This new season of the podcast has been commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. I'll be speaking with some of the artists whose work is programmed this year, and who also happen to be, you guessed it, immigrants. In this episode, I speak with Maven Koo. He was born in Malaysia and moved between there and India from the age of 10 while he completed what he calls a very old-school dance training. After a short stint in New York, he landed in the UK aged 18. His career as a dancer and coach has taken him all over the world. He is currently an associate and rehearsal director at the Akram Khan Dance Company. Their show, Jungle Book Reimagined, will play at the Edinburgh International Festival August 25th to 28th. We talked about five-year-old Maven falling in love with dance in Malaysia, sex, drugs and rock and roll as a young queer man in London in the 90s, and what Maven does when he needs to turn his brain off. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Maven Koo and I am an immigrant. Great to have you on the show. Maven. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. I'm really excited Same here. to talk to you. Same here. So looking at your life and your immigration history, you don't seem like a typical immigrant. You're kind of like a super immigrant, really. You're one of those people that seems to have gone to lots of different places and experienced lots of different, multiple mm-hmm. lives. I mean, yes and no, because I guess as, a, as an artist, your notion of home predominantly is where your work is or where, where you're allowed to be an artist at, at its most. So I think from the outside, it looks very much like a very transient journey that has kind of shifted and it's quite fragmented. Mm-hmm. But for me, because it's always been anchored by a space where I'm allowed to be the artist that I am or evolve as the artist that I would like to become, it doesn't feel as fragmented. It doesn't okay, feel as fragmented. So the thing fragmented. that kind of roots you is your art, is your practice. Yeah. And that's kind of your home in a way. Totally. Yeah. Particularly, I would say, you know, that period between your 20s and mid-30s. And we were just... um chatting before we started recording about your um about we're neighbors yes we are <laughs> so we could have actually just met on, <laughs> met on the river and talked about this but uh you know the borough of hackney has a special place in my heart yeah. i don't know what about you me too i mean i've it's funny because i've lived like you i think in southwest mm. north and then i started living living in east london probably it's funny around 2003 i would say yeah. i started to live in newington green which was considered very East at that time. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny. So I wanted to live this very particular lifestyle. And so I lived on a bunk bed with my best friend. I was already like, you know, in my mid-20s. Yeah. And we lived in a bunk bed in a council flat in Newington Green. Wow. Where we would literally, you know, have a, a kind of towel by the door saying, okay, come back in an hour. I've got someone in the room with me. I mean, it was amazing, amazing time. We had so much fun yeah. because it was also that time, you know, my early 20s was when I was really starting to really get 
into the lifestyle of being a queer young queer man in London yeah. as well. So it was all about dancing, but it was equally about dancing in clubs. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and that lifestyle as well. And it was very exciting, lots of fun, and lots of um, the unknown. Yeah. So as you sort of walk the streets of Hackney now, you're kind of probably remembering. It's these full times. of memories. Yeah. It's full of memories. Which place in the world do you feel most at home? London, I feel very much at home, and it's interesting when I go to India. I feel very much at home, but not in the same way. In a much more, in a much more deeper way, I would mm. say. I think in London serves a a sense of me as me, and in India there's almost a sense of me in a much deeper way that sometimes perhaps even I don't completely embrace or acknowledge. It's much more other life based. So I would say London. As a present, and India as an infinite. When you do go to, back to India, yeah. do you say I'm going home? I do. You do. I do. Okay. I do. Okay. It's funny because Malaysia really actually te- technically yeah. is my home, and I do say I go home to Malaysia. I go to Malaysia. Yeah. Because I guess in Malaysia, really the central kind of framework is my family um, and the food. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, yeah, but India has a much deeper sense of home and anchored home. And London has, I guess, a sense of uh, a feeling familiar. And so you're a Londoner rather than it's the it's not the UK, it's London. It's a London, yeah. for sure. Yeah. For me, I always said in London you can be many things and be a Londoner. And also, I think it's the only city actually, and I've travelled a lot, where that process and that journey of discovering yourself is quite a special one, and it's it's one that is really kind of quite free of judgment so you really you're able to really explore many things and i think my identity is very complex because it's so contradictory in every sense that makes it interesting though yeah interesting <laughs> it's challenging to live with anyway. <laughs> it's challenging yeah. to live with yeah. but i don't think i would have really been able to truly become me anywhere else um, so let's get on to your immigration journey. Sure. Um, you were born in Malaysia yep. in 1976. I heard you talk about, you know, when you were five, you expressed this in another interview about, you know, your the strongest instinct you've ever had in your life, I think is how you put it, which is quite a powerful thing Going to say. Going for my first dance class. Yeah. yeah, when you were five. Yeah, yeah. And knowing I want to do this every single mm. day. I mean, that's amazing at mm. five. Do you kind of return to that memory often? Is a lot. Um, it's funny because I think it's also one of the things that because I, I have such a clear sense of that instinct and it's something that I've kept with me throughout my life, Sometimes it's also not useful because sometimes I am so connected to that instinct. For example, in in a relationship with someone, I can be so instinctual about it and convinced by it. But of course, um, it doesn't necessarily mean the other person has that much trust in instinct. So that can be challenging. But I think as I've got older, I've become, again, quite uncompromising about staying true to that instinct, which can be challenging again. But I just believe in it so much because it was so strong and it wow. stayed with me, you know, it, it's proved itself. Yeah, okay. How was your life in Malaysia? What do you see when you think of it or what do you feel? Very, very comfortable, lots of laughter, big family. I come from mixed parentage. My father is, I think, third generation Malaysian-born Chinese. My mom is, I think, also third generation uh, Ceylon Tamil born Malaysian, uh, very big Sri Lankan Sloanist family. 
lots of uncles and aunts and, and aunties and very family oriented. Education was a big thing in my household because both yeah. my parents worked in education. Very wonderful parents who allowed this little boy who just had to dance pursue it. And I say little boy particularly. My father particularly was really kind of so um, encouraging and open about it. And, and much later, when I had to come out about my sexuality, my father actually was the one who was really um, very supportive and, and supported my mum as well through it. Did you know that he would be the one to accept it first? Very much so. Very because much he was so. very open about My father identity. was an amazing man. He, um, he was an atheist. I don't know actually what whether it's good to say he's an atheist because he believed in God but he just didn't practice. All his three sons when we were very young kind of really made us aware of different religious practices and the respect for different religions and, and he was a very kind of uh, inclusive man in, in the right way, in a very organic way. Um, so do you know how they met your parents? Yes, my father was a teacher trainee in a secondary school and my mom was in the secondary school oh, that's where subject. yeah so oh, she was wow. 17 I think and my dad was like nine years older than her that's where they met okay. but where they pursued uh, romantically was a few years later when my mom came to the city and, and they met again yeah okay. we always used to tease my dad about it uh-huh. a lot yeah he actually wrote a book actually my dad and he just talks about this this beautiful girl that had a presence that he then met later when she came to the city proper. Um, and their marriage was a strong marriage, it sounds like? Incredibly strong, yeah. incredibly strong. I mean, yeah, they married in uh, 1966 until my dad's passing. So there, there is something to be said, isn't it, about that generation mm. where that were kind of committed to marriage. And, uh, you know, they just kind of went through life together, the good and the bad. And I think sometimes I'm always a bit kind of like, uncertain whether because I had such almost a kind of exemplary love affair in front of me whether that has ruined you for life well in a way not ruined me but it plays the particular benchmark that one feels one can never attain yeah particularly actually in a city like London which is so much and as a gay man in London you know where everything is about choice and something like grinder is very much part of your your lifestyle so everything is about yes the next swipe and and when you are in a relationship, you know, when it's not so good, there is an option always to step out of it. Yeah. That's a complex one. Yeah. Do you go to dinner parties? <laughs> Sometimes? I, I do, probably more now than I used to, yeah. only because I'm older, I'm in, for, in my 40s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people invite you to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Or like gatherings or whatever, yeah. and someone comes up and says, oh, Maven, what do you do? What do you do? What do you say? I remember when I was younger, being in a club or, or yeah. something like that, and someone would say, oh, what do you do? And you go, oh, I'm a dancer. And of course, because there's a particular aesthetic of beauty, you know, that one kind of naturally embodies as a 20-year-old, or, you know, in my 30s, and they'd go, oh, I can see you're a dancer. Of course, that has shifted a lot in my 40s. And it's a funny one because I've become a much deeper artist. But now, you know, there's an element of what do you do? And potentially a bit of a surprise when you say you're a dancer because they don't identify that assumption of what their perception of a dancer is anymore with a 46-year-old man in front of them, you know. So that's quite interesting and it's quite complex as well because during the lockdown, I got into quite a serious relationship with someone which only lasted during the lockdown actually, which was quite interesting as well. Mm -hmm. But we ended up writing a play, a script on my life. He was a theatre director and one of the things that I really recognised because it ended up being so much like therapy 
was that there's such a there's such a navigation of this notion of beauty and nostalgia for a particular kind of beauty mm-hmm. and not completely in a space to embrace a new kind of beauty which is a very interesting challenging place to be in and how are you working through that you know i i've got a great therapist and it's a work in progress mm-hmm. but i miss being beautiful in a particular way and and the progression is being able to say that uh so when someone comes up to me now and says something like oh you look really wise i still have that thing going who the fuck wants to look wise i want to look beautiful <laughs> like you know like uh, it's a fascinating you know walking into a bar and no longer feeling that everyone could snog you it's a total process and it's uh, it's very humbling and it's it's a challenge to the narcissistic um you that has so long held on to a particular yeah identity yeah, yeah. But normally, if someone asks you what you do, you would say, "I'm a dancer." Yeah. Now, okay. no, well, now I say I'm a dancer and a coach. And actually, there's a part of me that's a bit kind of resistant to that. Ah, uh, you know, I, in fact, I was saying to someone, I really need to change my bio because you know it has this kind of like, oh, maybe Vinku is a dancer, coach, academic, blah blah blah. And I kind of go, at the end of it, actually, I'm an artist, full stop. You know, and this kind of ticking of the boxes, which is a very Western construct. I really increasingly as I'm getting older becoming more resistant towards. A lot of uh, descriptions of your work or reviews of your work seem to be seem to mention gender a lot. Right. Give me your hot take on gender like So when I came to the UK and oh. I started well first when I when I came to pursue my ballet training for me coming we're coming from Asia where in relation to ballet I was always a minority. you know I was either the only boy in class but I'd also already started developing so much work in Indian classical dance where my training was so much about dancing from a non-male perspective and when I came to the UK suddenly I was in a class with all boys where we were being taught to dance like boys you know so this idea of like dance like a man I first started hearing in the west which was very confusing to me because I just wanted to dance and i really struggled with particularly in a classical training with a whole way of being constructed to perform that seemed to allude to this notion of masculinity so i always used to like sneakily go into the the girls class actually because no one was telling the girls to dance like women they were just dancing and i always enjoyed the girls class more and interestingly on reflection all the dancers that i would obsessively you know watch videos of or read books of it's before the days of internet right were all women really i was okay. in love with female dancers all the time and i think it's because of this notion that i i just saw them as as dancing and never having to prove their kind of gender identity through it despite being a classicist and absolutely in love with the traditions and just the form of classical technique It's the one thing that I've really always struggled with in terms of a classical infrastructure mm. is the distinction of defining not just gendered roles in dancing but almost a hyper heteromasculinity which I really puts me off. Yeah. So from very young I kind of was quite rebellious against that and because of this my stature and when I was younger particularly I was very petite and I guess maybe being Southeast Asian quite androgynous looking mm-hmm. when i started to do work or get commissioned to do work it was a very natural progression for me for example to instead of partnering someone be partnered <laughs> because i was very small yeah. and the men were bigger and and that just became a thing that was natural 
and it was quite surprising for me the first time I got a review. I still remember from Judith McCrell from The Guardian, and it's the first time I saw the word androgynous being linked to oh. my presence, actually. Right. And I was like, what does androgyny mean? And so I feel that there's been kind of a brand that has been placed on me more and more that defines this notion of androgyny, almost to explain what I am, which is in a way still quite problematic yeah, for yeah. me, you know. But saying that, this notion of ambiguity, if you like, in fact, my PhD, which I started, it was about that, was actually about trying to navigate or redefine a new uh, notion of androgyny beyond gender binaries because we always think of androgyny as just something that has male and female or yeah. that is not male and female but if we looked at it beyond and just as a presence you know what is it because I didn't want to be underpinned purely based on these notions of gender I feel like like this idea of being nothing and everything is something so much more energetic Hi listeners, this is your reminder to book your tickets to Jungle Book Reimagined via the Edinburgh International Festival website. All the details are, as usual, in the show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not recommend it to people you know? The classic word of mouth method is very often how people discover podcasts. But you can also do the other stuff. Subscribe, rate, review or share our social media posts. Thanks and back to the show. You moved to India when you were 10. Mm-hmm. What happened? I started commuting between India and Malaysia when I was from 10. I had started dancing in Malaysia when I was five in Indian classical dance, obsessively. Uh, as I said, I literally started, you know, like most children start with once a week class or something like this. I started and I started every day. I still remember where I was going, the Temple of Fine Arts, there would be many different classes happening from 5 p.m. onwards until about 10 p.m. You know, and you have children, you know, um, elementary, adults. And by the end, what I would do is I'd do my class and then join another class and another class and another class. So I'd be this kid, you know, jumping from class to class. And I guess for my parents, I was in a safe environment, you know, so they were quite happy uh, to leave me there. At the age of 10, this very, very famous older master, really guru, came to Malaysia to conduct a series of workshops, which I attended. I was the only child there, I remember and um, kind of saw me and and really kind of said, okay, this kid has something there. Maybe he should come and spend some time with me in India. So it started from there. My training was very old school. I don't think you have that kind of training anymore, which is a shame. Very rigorous, one-to-one predominantly. And I also started my ballet training when I was about 12 in Malaysia and then also started to do classes in India. So I was homeschooled mostly, a lot of tuition. And in Malaysia, I was registered into a private school that allowed me to basically have time off. What were you feeling when you when that guru said to you, you should come to India? Were you excited? Absolutely. Yeah. I, for me, it was like a no-brainer. Okay. And in fact, I really sulked <laughs> and showed a tantrum. And I think I didn't eat for a while until my parents said yes. Because as I said, for my parents, this dance world was a completely different world. So there were lots of arrangements that had to be made in terms of my education and lots of things uh, before everything was agreed for me to go. And I think that is always the benefit. If people ask me about uh, starting training young, I think that's where there's a benefit as a child. 
yeah. you can be absolutely single-minded with nothing else uh, distracting you. And that's where it's harder to start dancing when you're a bit older. Mm. I had a very magical uh, growing up phase, which then had also problems later because it was a very bubbled fantasy-like yeah. life that uh, was not the reality of the world. <laughs> I grew up very fast and I didn't grow up at all. Yeah. So 10 to 17, right? That's when yeah. you were there. That's a chunk of your childhood. Yeah. And you were in this, as you say, bubble, and you would sound like you were enjoying it, you were getting a lot out of it, reaching your goals and all of that. And then at 18, how did you get to the UK? What happened? Well, at 18, um, my parents actually decided that it was time for me to further my education. They were concerned, rightfully, that um, if I stayed in India, I would live this very nomadic existence of being an artist with no real sense of direction which is very easy to do in India, I have to say. So actually before India, I got a scholarship to study at the Cunningham School in New York, which I went for for 10 months. And then after that, got a scholarship to come and train here at ballet school, which I did. I came to London. Didn't stay that long because I started to get some job opportunities to dance. So I took that and because I, I left conventional ballet training, I did a degree instead in dance. So, so from Madras yeah. in the bubble uh, to New York City. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I, you know, I was super young, right? I was like 17, yeah, 17 years old or something like that. So I literally lived across the street from the studio with uh-huh. a guardian. Like I didn't explore New York at okay. all until much later. Right. Like I remember re- arriving in London Heathrow like in September lots of shawls I mean I was such an Indian boy with my drone and everything yeah the Indian drone instrument yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah it's only when I came to London that it was time for me to start really identifying or understanding who I was Mm. so initially it was still very dance focused and then yeah when I started to meet people out of dance and feel confident to be able to be someone around non-dancers. Then I really went, you know, um, listen, my 20s and 30s, it was truly... Crazy times. Yeah, sex, drugs and rock and roll, it it really was. And it brought with it a lot of colour and a lot of darkness. There wasn't a balance at that point at all. And that was the point. It was everything was very extreme, extremely extreme. I think now as an artist, it's given me a lot of depth because I think I've really... I really have seen a lot and experienced a lot, as I said, of beauty and of ugliness, which is amazing as just in terms of what it gives to you in terms of life, but it's, it's hard as well. So tell me about the beauty. Beauty, I mean, what, uh, there's so many things. I mean, um, I, I, I think being in London, and we can go to London now, I think that particular time was an amazing time to be creative and to be queer, because I think it really, that early so 90s, 94. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a queer man, you were just coming out of that, that point of the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. So people were starting to feel more confident, I, I guess. It was still before HIV pill, I remember. But there was something about being young and, and being aware enough to be safe and therefore feeling a bit more courageous. Like ecstasy pills and all were starting to become so part of that, that scene. And I think that particular drug culture as well has a different kind of influence on you because it's so much about happiness and and dancing and, you know, it's not heavy in that sense. 
And also, towards the end, as I was getting into it, the late 90s was when the notion of metrosexuality and polysexual, what they used to refer to as yeah. polysexual clubs, were starting to come up, which meant that people were also going beyond the distinction of gay clubs and straight clubs. Huh. It was starting to be about, oh, it's really good music here and let's all come together. So that had, had a huge influence as well in terms of um, connections. And I met amazing people through that time, uh, super creative people. And, you know, you saw, you, you also saw a lot of people, you know, Alexander McQueen, I used to see every Friday at the cross, he'd be there, you know, standing by the DJ booth. Did you see uh, him? I have a very interesting story about Alexander McQueen, actually, <laughs> because I wear eyeliner. You, I wear yeah, eyeliner. Yeah. But um, it actually happened because I was in a club called Fiction, which is not there anymore, in the cross. And I was in one corner and he was by the DJ booth and he, he kind of motioned me towards him. So I walked up to it, towards him, very young and confident. And he lifted my chin and he looked at me and he said, you're wearing eyeliner. And I went, yeah. And he went, oh yeah, it suits you. You should do that more often. And then I was wearing a white crisp shirt that was buttoned to the top. And he turned me around and from the bottom, he, he split it, he tore the shirt so that the whole back, my whole back was exposed. Oh, wow. And the shirt opened up like a wing. I still have that shirt actually. He styled you. He styled me and then he kind of patted me on the button and then <laughs> moved me on. You met really amazing people. Yeah. One thing that's interesting when I reflect back though, and this is why also I think the thing that I've really started to respect and appreciate so much is the consistency of dance in my life. Because I do think it's the thing that has kept me alive. Because through all of that madness and the craziness, you won't believe the one thing I would never miss is my daily class. However off my face or however much I had not slept or slept, I was in ballet class every day. And that discipline to just keep doing it, regardless of whether I wanted to or not, has been the thing that has kept me going. But it was an interesting time. As a young artist, I ticked. So many boxes. boxes. So yeah. many boxes. So very quickly, I was, myself and Akram, were placed in a space that certainly, I think Akram was, was definitely ready for, but I know I was not ready for. But it was very, very exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. You'd lived in countries that had been colonised, oppressed, mm. extracted from by Britain mm. before mm. you came here. Did you have an opinion about that? When I you mean, arrived? it's it's so interesting, right? Because I think you're absolutely right. I talk a lot about this today as a kind of colonized product. I guess I can't ignore the fact that as a young 20-year-old, there was a certain element of the need to be validated by, by London. The mother country or whatever yeah, it's called. Totally, yeah, totally, you know. And it's taken me a long time to kind of go, for example, as an Indian classical dancer, you know, why, why would I want validation from, I don't know, a theatre programmer here when actually in the music academy in Madras is what I should be looking at. I mean, I got into, I really went into therapy big time during the first lockdown, which was amazing actually because I, I was seeing a therapist regularly and having the space to force myself to confront many things. And one of those things was this notion of uh, how prepared was I going to be to, to continue to submit, really, to all kinds of branding and, and boxes and agendas and ideals that were placed on me by a, a Western construct 
for them to feel that they can understand me. And that comes from what I do as an Indian dancer to who I am, even as a queer man. And one thing I really realized is, you know, people keep saying, you know, there's no, increasingly there's no East and West. And actually I've understood that there is such a difference between the East and West. And when we say there isn't, it's often because the West has decided that they can now understand what has become a globalized East. So the East is understandable to the West because it's Westernized. So I think I've heard you describe this notion of cultural baggage because a lot of your work is in this classical tradition. Obviously, mm. you do a lot more than that. But when you're performing for an Indian audience, say, and then you're performing for a Western audience, there's obviously different filters going on for each audience. And you obviously want to transcend that cultural context and the cultural baggage, but how do you find the different audiences respond? You know, what, what are the differences between their responses? So that's a really interesting question, because if you'd asked me a year ago, do you dance differently for an Indian audience to a Western audience? My immediate answer would be no, right? Which I've realised is a lie. And so actually last weekend I performed again after three years and I really performed genuinely what I would perform in India here. What do I mean by that is even if I was doing a classical Bharatanatyam, Indian classical dance solo show in Sadler's Wells, let's say, yes, I would be kind of unconsciously, for example, concerned with the time length. You know, how long can, I, can the audience sustain the stamina to watch this? Last week, I did a concert and it was two and a half hours long with no intermission, as I would do in India. Yeah. And of it's course, here, completely unusual. Yeah. And of course, the, the, the first thing I will say is it's unusual because as a colonized product, my first goal would be to go, oh, I shouldn't make it too complicated for them, right? They need to understand when actually everything about India is about not understanding. It's about experiencing. And actually, what the audiences in the West, if they want to have an Indian dance experience, they need to surrender to the fact that they won't go, they're not going to understand it, actually. But if they open themselves to an experience, something might come out of it, which means that they're going to have to sit through something that's going to have to take the time to get somewhere. Because what I achieve in an hour, 10 minutes at Sadler's Wells is nowhere close to what I achieve after three hours. <laughs> emotionally, transcendentally, spiritually. After so many years of working in, in the West, I suddenly said to myself, fuck, I've been lying to myself all the time. I have been making compromises. And so it was the first time that I actually did a show where I felt that I wasn't compromising, but still I felt I had to hold their hands a bit. So it was a particular format that I used where I was going in and out of talking and dancing. I joked and said I felt a bit like Shirley Bassey in concert. I kind of linked all the pieces to life memories and stuff like that uh -huh. so that it wouldn't feel too academic, I guess. But I did, I think, kind of hold your hand through a, a process. And it's, it's a starting point to get them to, to surrender. Let's talk about your immigration status when you arrived in London. So you had... I came as a student. A student visa yeah. valid for... Oh, I can't remember. I think it must have been three years. It was much easier those days. Yeah. But then very quickly, I lived on work permits for a long, long, long time. So yeah. you had to be constantly thinking, when is my next work permit? Yeah. Yeah. And who's, who's going, going to, to give me... Yeah, exactly. That Ex kind of thing. Exactly. So it was a kind of a stressful existence in that... In terms of the I would say initially it, I took it for granted because it was much easier mm. in, before. 
And then, as I said, after many years, in 2006, I think it was, I finally applied for a resident status and I stupidly did the application by myself and basically applied under the wrong scheme. So I was asked to leave the UK, which was one of the most horrific experiences I've ever had in my life. One of the most horrific and one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because by that point, 2006, it was a very interesting period because, as I said, I was kind of pushed up creatively in the industry way before I was ready for it. I was making work as a choreographer that I was not really very good at, but I ticked all the right boxes. Mm -hmm. So I kept getting the grants and the funds. But there was a certain sense of industry kind of like not liking what I did because it was not very good, to be honest. (laughs) But I really started to suffer a lot of insecurities, big time insecurities. And at the same time, I was in this other world of validation of clubs and nightlives and sex, drugs and rock and roll. And the less secure I started to feel professionally, I submerged myself more into that other extremity. I was not living a very healthy life at all. Very, very decadent, complex life. It's funny because, you know, you talk about divine intervention. And I really feel it was divine intervention because there was absolutely no reason why I would have applied for a wrong scheme at all. But I did. And I got a letter one day saying, you have a month to leave the UK. So I was living alone at that time, which I thought was a big accomplishment in a small studio in Old Street, just behind the roundabout. And spoke to a lawyer and they said, go back and... uh, you know, we'll get a new work permit for you when you go back to Malaysia. So go back for a week. So I packed a bag, literally for a week, went home to Malaysia, got a new work permit immediately from the UK, went to the British High Commission in Malaysia and got rejected. Went again with another work permit and got rejected for the second time. And then I was too scared to go for the third time because if you get third time, then it's, it's, okay. it's really... What was their reason? Uh, there were many different reasons. There were things like, well, you shouldn't have applied for a wrong scheme and or if you've applied for a residence permit, then that means you're trying to base yourself in the UK. And there were lots of things. So I had a nervous breakdown, truly, in Malaysia. And I remember saying to my friends, please just take all my stuff in my flat and burn it. The old street flat. Yeah, which they did. And then one day when I was in Malaysia, I come, as I said, spirituality has always been quite a big part of my family upbringing. And my elder brother, who had started to develop a real kind of strong devotional practice in um, specifically uh, goddess worship, Hindu goddess worship, said to me, why don't you come to this temple with me that I go to? And I went and I walked in and the priestess, it's a, there's a priestess there, not a priest. She looked at me uh, without knowing me and she just said, the first thing she said was, mother has made you cross the oceans to come and see her because you've forgotten her. And so that started a year of, I say, always reconnecting to my parents, to my dancing again, beyond industry and to my faith. You won't believe this. I think I went back July 15th, I think. And July 15th, the following year, I was offered a Shandling scholarship to come back to the UK to do my master's. I did my master's for two years. 
and then again was wondering whether I should stay in London and then really weirdly went to Malta on holiday because I'd been to Malta on tour a few times and so I knew a few people and the day I was leaving my friend said to me oh do you know the university is starting its first dance department uh, you should check it out so I went online and indeed I saw that they were starting a dance department they were looking for lecturers I'd just done my masters I just wrote an email and I immediately was asked to come for an interview and was offered a job. So I went to Malta thinking I'd go for three years to set up this dance department with a team and ended up staying there for eight years because I also then started the first state dance company. I was director of the company there. And then whilst I was there, I was coming to London a lot by that point still and getting work permits again in the UK. The work permit the work tradition permit started to come back okay. and I was coming back to work in the UK. And then one day... My dear Akram that we met in 1998, we danced together and we were very close. And then, so this and, is Akram Khan? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then our lives went separate ways, mm. you know, and he became the success he was. And I had a much more fragmented journey, but nevertheless a deep journey, I would say. But we always stayed in touch and we always loved and respected each other. But then in 2012, it would have been, he called me and he said to me, uh, I'm doing a piece and I think you should dance in it. And I said, I can't come because I've, I've committed to this, at that point, this dance company that we're about to start. And he said, okay, fine, it's a shame. And then a m- m- month later, he called me and he said, okay, if you can't dance, why don't you start coming in as a guest coach? They could really learn from something from you. And so there started this initially just guesting, coming into Akram's company. But of course, what was so special for me was that when I was coming into Akram's company, what started to happen upon my return to the West was that I increasingly started to become more clear and more convinced by this anchor that I came from and less and less the need to be validated, which meant that I began to understand that I actually was less and less relatable to majority of industry because it's so specific. And when I was going to Akram's space, I felt totally understood. Uh, I gave in my notice in Malta and I moved back to be full-time with Akram. That's quite a journey. And how wonderful of Akram to kind of... You know, listen, I mean, the relationship we had, it's, it's one that is very Indian. It's really embedded in this notion of devotion, is the word, and love. And when I say brotherly, I don't mean brotherly as in, you know, two bros. But really, I don't know how, how, how much you know of Indian mythology, but one of the, the famous stories we have is called the Ramayana. And in that, there is, uh, there's Rama and there's Lakshmana, his younger brother. And we, I always identify myself as Lakshmana to his Rama. Because in the story, Rama is sent to exile for 14 years. And his brother Lakshmana goes with him into exile. And there's a beautiful verse in the story where Rama says to him, don't go, don't come with me for 14 years. You have your own life to live. And Lakshmina turns around and says, my destiny is to serve your destiny. And so I always feel like this for Akram. And I think it's something that is quite hard for people to understand. Do you see yourself as an old man here? I think it's interesting because I, as a dancer, I am very much aware that when I am in class every morning, I am the oldest person in class. Whereas as an Indian dancer, I'm at my peak. 
yeah. now. And there are many ahead of me who are amazing artists who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So it's a different time length. But definitely as a, as a Western dancer, I'm very much aware of the fact that I'm the oldest You're person. You're mature. Yeah. 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 I love London so much. It's, but it is also a very transient city, as you know. So, so many of my friends are actually no longer in London. Mm. Most of them have, have moved to different parts of the world, have started families. It's a tough city to be single. And it's a tough city to be a single gay man, I think. An older single gay man, I think. It's, yeah, it's tough. Do you see yourself in the future, 20 years from now, at here? I don't know. No. I don't know. And I think, I think that depends so much on, on um, how life goes. Yeah. Tell me about your tattoos. Uh, so everything on the left is linked somehow to a female energy and everything uh-huh. to the right is male. And then in the middle, I've got a chakra that is supposed to be both energies merging and separating at the same time. And they're all lines. I don't like lines. And yeah. so have you got plans for, for other ones? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It's just constantly... Yeah, like, yeah. I've got, one? at the moment, how many do I have? One? I think I've got about 10, I think, at the moment. What was the first one? The first one was a, just a line uh, down my back, like yeah. a single line like that. What's with the lines? What's so they say um, an abstract idea poetically, uh, kind of linear lines are female energy oh. and horizontal lines are male. And okay. the left is the female and the right Who is the male that? in Hindu in Hindu <laughs> philosophy. Okay. Podcast listeners, I will uh, link <laughs> to some images. You still go to nightclubs? I do. It's a different experience. Totally. Yeah. And I think the biggest difference is that I'm able to leave. And that's a big thing. Okay. Because when I was younger, it was always about how far can I push this? You know? So you were the last to go? Or, or it, was, it wasn't just a night. It was night after night after night after night. And it was always about yeah, how far I could push it. It was about proving something as opposed to going and enjoying the experience for what it is and leaving <laughs> So when do you leave? When it feels right to leave. Okay, so you, yeah, yeah. the instinct comes. Yeah, and you kind of have that objective head that's just going, okay, it's cool, let's go, and you, you leave, yeah. you know, and it's a cool leaving. I think that that's a big shift as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about, you know, what we're here for. The Edinburgh International Festival, what's happening in the Edinburgh International Festival? So we're presenting Jungle Book, Akram's new work, uh, which is very exciting work. It's a two-act piece. So there is an interval, guys. So there is an interval, yes. Go to the loo. And it's, uh, it's an unusual departure from our work in the sense that, I wouldn't say it's a departure, actually. It's an involvement, actually, of, of something that Akram has been interested over a period of time. But this time, he's really kind of gone there, which is taking a work that is really stemmed in a script. So text is very important through it. it was, it's a play first that was written by Tariq Jordan. And from there, Akram has developed this two-act work it really is a work that, for him, we, he calls it a, a family show because he feels that it's a work that the message needs to be shared by adults and children. So when we say it's a family show, we don't mean that it's watered down for children. It's a heavy show. And it's a, like all Akram's work, it's very poetically uh, loaded. <laughs> but which I completely agree with him, because the messaging is about climate change and it's about a, a migrant. Mowgli is, is a migrant in our, in our um, reimagining yeah. of. It deals with heavy issues that one can't shy away from the heaviness of it. It's a beautiful, poetic 
discovery of this child, this girl Mowgli, um, you cry in the right places, <laughs> like in Akram's work, and you leave with hope, yeah. like with Akram's work. Okay. Now yeah. I've seen the preview; it looks amazing. And there's a lot of there's a lot of um, projection animation. as well. Yeah. Animation. And I love yeah. what we have done with the animation because. Animation is tricky because it's so easy for it to look so impressive and just mm. so super cool, but actually lose that poetic element. So I think with Nick, Adam and Naman, who were working with us on it, the first thing I would say that was super smart from Akram's, that Akram did was to identify an aesthetic of the animation that would lend itself to the poetic nature of his work. So that's not just this super cool thing, but it's it's very poetic. It's it's really line drawings, and so one never gets a sense of the technology being impressive, but rather the technology serves the poetic nature and of the it's work. Completely integrated. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. So that's the show, guys. Book your tickets. I will definitely be going along. Looking from the outside, as I said, you, your life seems very intense. It is it totally is, intense. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like the first thing that anyone who goes out with me is like, uh, you're so intense, oh, you're man. so <laughs> intense. And like every time they're like, oh, I just started to know this like ballet side of you, and now there's a whole Indian side of you as well. It's very <laughs> right. There's a lot. Um, so for us mere mortals here, what do you do to chill out? Like, what's your version of watching reality TV and like eating L- KFC? How do you know about this? <laughs> How do, how, do, how do you know about all of this? So, listen, my father was an amazing academic. He was a historian. And he, I used to come home sometimes and I'd watch, watch him watching the most ridiculous, like, television series. Or, and I'd be like, how can this amazing intellectual be watching this shit? And he used to say to me, I need my brains to rest. Well, come another, like, 30 years, 40 years... What you will see me watching is, yes, The Real Housewives of Atlanta, New York, <laughs> ba- Beverly Hills. And yes, not at the moment because I'm trying to get my body back, but I am a lover of KFC oh, buckets. Really? <laughs> oh my God, wow. You really I hold really, in there. Yeah, I really got it. I watch a lot of shit TV to chill out. I feel um, better about myself now. Um, I love music. I love music mm-hmm. and um, I follow a lot of DJs. I used to go out with a lot of DJs back in the day. So I developed a real love for electronic music, but also a lot of world music. I love music. So yeah. I listen to a lot of music. I just bought a, a vinyl player and I've started to collect vinyls. Yeah, That's which is fun. proving to be quite expensive hobby, yeah, I have to say. But, but it's, it's a nice thing. I love it, yeah. So what's the best trash TV? So best, what is it, Housewives? Yeah. Housewives <laughs> of where? Well, you have, you, have, you have Atlanta, Beverly Hills, and New York. Okay, so which one's better? They're all different because okay. they all have a different kind of uh, perspective. All right. Yeah. What about, do you watch Strictly Come Dancing? No, I don't. No, that, you draw the line. But I used to be a massive X Factor fan. I like voting and everything. Really? <laughs> yeah. Voting on your phone? Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. That I did not expect. That yeah. I did not expect. Yeah, I mean, okay. Alexander Burke really owes me. <laughs> that is good. See? People, don't worry. You can do this. It's fine. You can be an amazing <laughs> artist and also eat buckets of KFC. All right. So um, that's it. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Really, Thank really you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm going to just say goodbye. And Thank you. Have a day. You too. Thanks. Bye. It was a joy to talk with Maven, a total gift of a podcast interviewee. Do go see Jungle Book Reimagined at the festival if you're heading there in August. You can also follow Maven on Instagram where you can check out his tattoos and also follow his endless adventures. Details are in the show notes. 
You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. Thank you for your company and catch you next week. Thank you.